Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 28th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. We'd like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Galavan, Galavan, and Amelia, creators of the digital war room platform for e-discovery. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is special masters in e-discovery. We're pleased to welcome as our guest, our dear friend and colleague, Craig Ball. Craig is a Texas trial lawyer and certified forensic examiner who limits his practice to service as a court-appointed special master in electronic evidence when he's not teaching and writing about how to survive and prosper as a 21st century litigator. Craig teaches electronic discovery at the University of Texas School of Law, and he has, for the last seven years, pens the award-winning law technology news column called Ball in Your Court. Welcome, Craig. Hi, John. Good morning, Sharon. Nice to have you with us, Craig. And I should tell our listeners that the reason we came up with this topic is because we had a delightful time with you out in Salt Lake City, where we were all lecturing for the uh, Intermountain eDiscovery Conference uh, that Orange Legal Technologies puts on. And it was wonderful to hear your presentation on Special Masters. Um, I know you didn't think it was fascinating, but I hear so little about it that John and I were both riveted by what you had to say about Special Masters. So thank you for repraising the topic here today. Well, thank you for having having me. It's always a great pleasure to spend any time with the two of you, and especially on Digital Detectives. Well, I wish it was at dinner, because we sure had fun that night, too. But <laughs> but let's, let's start with our topic um, and, and talk about exactly what an ESI Special Master is, because I think a lot of folks don't really understand it. Well, I, I have to say, first and foremost, I mean, it, you've got to admit, it's got to be one of the greatest job titles. As a, as a guy who, who was weaned <laughs> on I Dream of Genie, there's always a certain... <laughs> You know, man of my age that likes to be called master, but special master. I mean, you, you can't beat it for job title. What is a special master? You know, depending upon whether you're talking about state or federal, a special master is a person who is appointed to stand in the shoes of the judge to deal with a special circumstance, to deal with a unique issue to which hopefully they bring some additional expertise and focus than the judge can afford to, to bring to it. I often speak of the role of the special master as being a, a mix of judge and technical geek and a little bit of Oprah thrown in for good measure. Hmm. Well, well, Craig, aside from getting three wishes, why would we really need or want a special master? <laughs> well, it's a good question. And, and the I, it depends upon the role that the special master is being asked to play. I'm usually brought in when there is either a question that is so specialized in terms of its technical component that the court is somewhat throwing up their hands and saying, I have two experts on opposite sides. They're saying diametrically opposed positions. I need someone who's going to speak for the court, someone who can make sense of this, ask the right questions, and get not merely to a compromise that may not serve either side, but can hopefully get to a, a genuine successful outcome. Because we need to remember that by the time a special master is brought in, often these cases have gotten into an untenable position. There's an enormous amount of, of waste uh, that may be uh, attendant to a lawyer 
who doesn't quite know what to do. Civility between the parties is often gone. Trust is non-existent. And conflict has become something of an aim in and of itself. So but my initial job is to is to help resolve the breakdown in communications and to remember, to help the parties in the court remember that although splitting the baby is a reference to King Solomon's wisdom, in point of fact, Solomon was trying to kill the baby in order to get the mother to step forward. We don't really want a bunch of dead babies in our cases. We want solutions that actually serve the interests of justice and and realize the goals of Rule 1 of the Federal Rules of a just, comma, speedy, and inexpensive resolution. Well, I'm still trying to get my head around Special Master Ball uh, as a title, Craig. Uh, but, and I'm glad you don't want a bunch of dead babies. But t- t- tell us, how does an ESI Special Master get involved in the case initially? Well, you will either be brought in by the court and the court will often ask for recommendations for the parties, or the parties may recognize early on that they have a need for uh, some more expedient resolution, some more specialized resolution, and may choose to bring a special master in. Another role that a special master may play is that a special master has, hopefully, both the technical expertise to do certain tasks, such as, in my case, computer forensics, but also has the legal training and the neutral status to be able to, for example, see uh, personally identifiable information or privileged information without compromising the legitimate privacy and privilege interests of one side or the other. So the mechanics of appointment are, are fairly straightforward. Once the court has settled on the need for a special master, the mechanics are governed in the federal system by uh, rule of civil procedure number 53, uh, with uh, either the, appoint- the party's consent, with a finding that there is some exceptional condition that requires the master, or simply because the court finds that the court needs someone who can address matters that can't be effectively and timely addressed by the time available to the judge. In each state, there will be different rules that govern the appointment of a master and the circumstances that must exist, such as an exceptional case, in order to justify uh, such appointment. Well, if the parties themselves want a special master, do they file a petition for appointment of a special master, or what? What would the document be called? Well, if they wanted um, a special master, they would make an, a, a motion uh, in federal court for a Rule Fifty Three appointment. But keep in mind that they don't have to have a special master serve entirely at the pleasure of the court. If they can agree upon the use of a neutral, if they can memorialize the role of that neutral and the restraints upon that neutral, or hopefully the neutral, his or herself, will have had enough experience to be able to provide such an order, you can do this outside of the purview of the court. Parties can agree. But, I mean, let me say this. If you elected to go with a Rule 53 appointment, you would want the order to address the duties, the powers, the limits on those powers. You would want it to address whether there can be ex-party contact and what that ex-party contact uh, permits. You'd want record-keeping and reporting responsibilities to lay out. And finally, and, and, and somewhat importantly for all concerned, you would want to make clear what is the compensation, who pays, and whether it can be taxed as costs. Is, is it ever something different than 50-50 that you've seen? Oh, sure. 
Um, in, in many instances, I've been appointed. There was a problem created by an allegation of data destruction. The court has found uh, some level of impropriety on one side or the other. The court, I've been appointed as a sanction. If you've ever wondered what a sanction looked like, <laughs> just go to my website and there's a picture of a sanction. That's me. And I mean, you know me well enough to know that that's actually a, probably an apt description of time spent with me, that it might be a sanction. <laughs> now, in, this, in this order, I think it's important to, to remember that a special master has a meter running, and it's, I think it's worthwhile to either have a definition of when the job is done or to place some periodic reevaluation of the need for the master, whether the master's job is complete and the master should be uh, moved aside, essentially, to you know, get, get that resolution. Well, well Craig, you, you mentioned some somewhat general things where, of the, the special master as a judge and an expert, et cetera, but can you drill down a little more in, in some of the detailed sort of roles that an ESI special master might play? Sure. And it kind of boils down, I think, to essentially three primary roles that the special master can play. One is the special master as, as a referee. And in that role, you're really acting as a surrogate judge. You're supplementing the time that the judge cannot devote to a single matter. And hopefully you have a certain technology background, even though you may not regard yourself as a true expert in the nuts and bolts of this. Then there's the special master who serves as an arbiter, as a decision maker. And there, I think, you really need to have the full complement of technical and legal skills so that you can determine the proper scope and methods and processes and possibly tools and service providers, whatever is needed to to find as close to the best resolution as, as can be. But you are really the decision maker, either because the court has afforded you that power or because you can make a recommendation to the court, which hopefully the court will follow. Finally, there's the role of neutral expert. And here, you're really doing the work. But because you stand in the shoes of the court, you can do the work with freedom to see privileged information, to see private information, trade secrets, and so forth. And it'll still be in the shroud of an in-camera protected view. And this is a situation where I'm often appointed where the, the need to perform computer forensics is in place. Well, I know you've talked a little bit about how, uh, at least you did out in Salt Lake City, about how you sometimes feel like you're operating as a parent as well. And I know you come in a lot and what you find really is a disaster that you've got to try to figure out how to solve. Um, so what do you do to fix e-discovery efforts that have just gone wildly astray? Well, and, and I'd like to say, although there's a, a technical component to it and sometimes a substantial one, much of what I'm actually called on to accomplish is not rocket science. It's, it's as you say, it's it's more like being a parent. It's more like the old book that uh, used to be called um, Everything I Ever Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. <laughs> so the first thing I try to do is to break communication log jams. And I do this by a, a level of enforced civility, of basically telling the parties, look, all this stuff that's been eating up time with the dissembling and the sniping at one another and the recriminations and the, the living the history of this case, that's over. We're, we're going to treat each other like grown-ups from here on out. We're going to treat each other like people that have the privilege to stand up for others in the courts of, of justice and, you know, like I say, grown-ups. And I also put a rule down which seems obvious 
but isn't necessarily, and, and that is I require candor and diligence. I say, don't tell me anything that you haven't proven to be true, and bring me metrics and bring me verification, because a lot of what you hear from litigants is in the nature of urban legend. It's something they've been telling themselves so often they've come to believe it, but it has little connection to the facts of, of what their systems can do. The third thing I do is, is as I say, I, I demand that the people who are talking to me know what they're talking about. So toward that end, I require the appointment of technical liaisons. I, I, I basically believe that if you can get technical liaisons, people with the kinds of skills that you and John bring to a case, for example, talking to peers on the other side, that you are problem solvers, that that you're not going to be caught up in the advocacy, but you're going to figure out a way to get the job done expediently, efficiently, and effectively. Now, another thing that I think is important, that, uh, that it may be most important of all, and I have to remind myself of this all the time, and that is I need to know what I'm talking about. It's very easy to get caught up in the, the power, the prestige, the, 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 the feel of warm lips pressed against soft ass, that comes with being appointed in this role. And I have to remind myself that I need to listen, I need to question, and I need to study. Because if if I can't know what I'm talking about, everybody below, if you will, or beside, um, I can't really fault them. I try to seek consensus where it's possible, but decide when it's not. People need certainty. Sometimes I've, I've heard people say in cases, look, even if we don't win, at least we need an answer. We need to move forward. And it's this uncertainty about what it is we're supposed to do that is killing us. And then the last two things are I ensure that there is a high transparency of process and hopefully rational outcomes. I, I try to focus on the practical. I try to allow a, a look at what the other side is doing in ways that don't imperil their legitimate needs of privacy and privilege so that trust can be built. And a big part of my work in cases where I've been asked to make recommendations respecting sanctions is, and I borrow from the great jurist Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. when I say that even a dog distinguishes between being stumbled over and being kicked. And often it's my job to determine, did the dog get kicked or did the dog get stumbled over? Did, did they do something with uh, an evil intent, or did they simply make a terrible mistake, and that's why the data may be gone? You know, Craig, I'm sure there's some confusion from our listeners, but what we've been talking about here, isn't that kind of what a judge does for free? Yes, and and in a certain sense, you, you could look at it that way. If you believe that coming to a judge is, is free, if you ignore the very high cost of motion practice if you ignore the challenge uh, and risk of having to educate a judge about highly technical things that are, are the judge was not trained in in law school and has probably not had an opportunity uh, to learn in their day-to-day -day work on the bench, um, if you realize that the demands on a judge's time are extraordinary and the judge may not have the level of access and availability needed to keep a case moving forward, um, then you might say, sure, a judge is free. But uh, this stuff, some of it requires some special knowledge, some specialized experience, and a level of expertise 
that a judge can't bring to it. Now, we know that judges make hard decisions and often very good decisions about things that they don't know very well, but it's not optimum. If, if the right specialist who can devote the right attention, ask the right questions and involve the right people, that, that is going to make a significant difference in saving money. I mean, I can give you a quick example. I resolved the case on Friday. I sent my recommendation into the court. That is a, a situation where the court appointed me to make a decision about access to certain data for purposes of forensic examination. Now, as you, John, I'm a forensic examiner. We have a certain specialized skill set. We hopefully understand what can be done and feasibly in forensics and what perhaps can't be done. Had I not interceded with the court's mandate, I think that the plaintiffs would have ended up spending well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars on something that was in no way calculated to succeed. Collectively, the parties would have been inconvenienced and this case would have gone into a very expensive cul-de-sac, whereas by merely questioning the experts on both sides in a certain way, the parties were able to see the problems, and we didn't have to bring it to a resolution. The, the plaintiffs themselves who had been moving to acquire these terabytes of data realized that they were going in the wrong direction. And I think there, a, a very short five hours of my time or whatever it was collectively ends up saving hundreds of thousands of dollars that would have generated no benefit to anyone. So I, I think that the cost savings can be genuine when, when the scope is right and when the skill set is right. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, Gallivan, Gallivan, and Omelia, creators of the digital war room platform for e-discovery. Do you need to strategize, review and produce documents for litigation, government investigations, or HSR second requests in a single e-discovery tool for every size and every type of matter? Digital War Room eliminates costly pre-processing of collected documents, realizing savings of 80% or more, and giving you greater control over e-discovery. Experience end-to-end e-discovery on your Windows desktop, on your internal network, or in our hosted review center. Download a free trial of Digital War Room Pro at www.digitalwarroom.com. That's digitalwarroom.com. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today we're talking to Craig Ball, a Texas attorney who has served many, many times as an ESI special master. So, Craig, how does one go about selecting an ESI special master, whether it's the parties or the court that's making the the selection? I think that there's a a kind of skill set that you need to look for, particularly if the master is going to be uh, deeply involved with questions of electronically stored information. You want to be sure first and foremost, that the person can be neutral and skeptical and hopefully a little creative in their approach to solving the problem. You definitely need someone who is skilled 
in systems and solutions who understand, say, the forms and locations of ESI, the mechanisms of preservation, the formats for production, and I think as well understands law and procedure, issues of privilege and confidentiality, third-party rights, and, and understands the scope of discovery. Ideally, it's someone who works well with both the legal side of the equation and the information technology side of the equation, respects the court's roles, and is always looking for efficiencies and cost savings. So that, to me, is the is the optimum skill set of a special master. I mean, you're you're going to look around, you're going to ask for recommendations, you're going to get lists from people. You want to you want to call around, you want to find out what are the horror stories, where where did the special master um, go wrong, where did the special master cost too much or waste time? These things happen, and so you want to dig in and and look just as you would with hiring your own expert. So, so, Craig, I know you, you mentioned some of this stuff before, but can you kind of bulletize for us what needs to be in, in an appointment order for a special master? Um, sure. And, and as I say, you, you want under Rule 53 uh, the, the scope of the appointment to be clear. You want to be sure uh, that it, um, it's going to set out the duties, the powers, the limits to those powers, issues of ex-party contact, record keeping and reporting responsibilities, compensation issues. And, and, and I would also add the following. Not only did I mention earlier, when is the job done, but also is the special master subject to being deposed or to being called at trial? What are the avenues and the standards for appeal of the special master's recommendations? Are they going to be judged by an abuse of discretion standard? Will there be a, a de novo turn to the court for all matters. Setting that sort of thing out in the appointment order makes the role of the master clear and, and hopefully makes the master understand what he or she can do and should do and what areas should properly be reserved exclusively to the court. So in this whole process, Craig, what can the litigants themselves do to be of help? Well, I think the most important thing that the litigants can do is to better educate themselves about electronically stored information to be able to learn how to roll up their own sleeves and use some better tools and, as I like to say, get their hands a bit dirty with data so that when they come to these special master sessions that they're able to give solid metrics. They're able to to uh, be accurate in what their statements, that they're able to better communicate. And I, and I mentioned earlier one of the most important things you can do is get a, a trustworthy and skilled technical liaison talking with a counterpart for the other side. I know lawyers are terrified of that. They're afraid that the geeks are going to give away the farm in some fashion or compromise privilege, but that's not at all what happens. It improves the quality of, of communication, which means that it builds a level of trust and confidence in the process. And ultimately, I think all of us have a duty to try to build trust and confidence and confidence in our justice system. So that's that's what they can do. They can try to foster communications instead of always trying to fight them. So Craig, this is what everyone wants to know is is what kinds of appointments are you you working on right now? Oh gosh, um it's so varied. It, that's what I love about this work is you you almost never know exactly what you're going to be doing because they can range from as I mentioned, uh, having to make decisions about 
what level of access is given to opponents. I mean, whether or not there should be some kind of direct access or whether or not forensic examination is is warranted or what the scope of that should be. Sometimes I'm called upon to completely revamp and and, and resolve um, a, a broken e-discovery effort. Um, it, it's just so varied. Sometimes I'm 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 doing the Oprah stuff. Sometimes I'm doing the geek stuff, and sometimes I'm doing the judge stuff. But the best appointments are the ones where I get to bring a measure of all of that. I find working with with good lawyers to be a, a, just a tremendous privilege. I love work. I love lawyers, and I, I love working with good lawyers. And I and I also love tech types. So for me, just the opportunity to get in there, get people talking again, to explain to them, to help educate them what they're dealing with. And, and help get them on the right path is a, it's a, a wonderful job. It's not only the greatest title that you could ever hope for, but it's really some of the greatest work. Well, we certainly agree with you. And I know the three of us probably enjoy coming to work more than any three people I know, Craig. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> well, thank Especially you. Especially when jo- I get to spend a part of the day with you two. Like this. <laughs> Well, we've been enjoying it, and we want to thank you for joining us. Um, I I never did know a great deal about Special Masters, so I really did love that presentation you gave in Salt Lake City and learned a whole lot. And I think you probably know as much about this subject as anybody in eDiscovery. So thanks for sharing your knowledge with our listeners. We're so glad you could be with us. We look forward to the next dinner and a cruise after that. Uh, (laughs) And you know we'll be asking you anytime we have a chance to join us in the future. It's a pleasure, and I hope you won't mind. For those who'd like to know more about it, I wrote an article called E-Discovery, A Special Master's Perspective, and in that I talk in more detail about these kind of issues, provide an exemplar appointment order, and so forth, to make your job easier if you decide to go in that direction. And it's available at my website, which is craigball.com, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-L-L.com. Great. That's terrific. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And you can find more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and security services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.